Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her udtale med Yuan Yuan Ang, som er professor ved Johns Hopkins University i Baltimore. Hun er prominent kinaekspert, som flere gange er blevet brugt i den amerikanske kongres til at vejlede amerikanske lovgivere om Kinas moderne politiske og økonomiske udvikling. Og så er hun forfatter til to af de bedste bøger, jeg har læst om moderne politisk historie i Kina. How China Escaped the Poverty Trap fra 2016 og China's Gilded Age fra 2020. Hello! Hello! Hi, thank you so much for having me. Grundlæggende, siger Aang, skal vi forstå, at Kinas moderne historie falder i tre faser. Den ene går fra tiden lige efter en verdenskrig og frem til slutningen af 70'erne. Det får man maves tid. Det er kulturrevolutionens tid, det er kommunismens tid, det er den enorme førerkult og den kolossale fattigdom og udbredte forarmelse af den kinesiske befolkningstid. Derefter kommer Deng Xiaoping til. Deng Xiaopings projekt er ret enkelt. Det er at gøre et fattigt land til et velstående land. Det er at skabe økonomisk vækst og økonomisk udvikling og teknologisk udvikling i en stormagt, som har stået fuldstændig stille i op imod et halvt århundrede. Det projekt varer over tre årtier og kulminerer omkring 2010. Der har været helt enestående vækstrater. En halv milliard mennesker er gået fra at være fattige til at være nogenlunde velstående. Det er et af de mest spektakulære politiske eksperimenter i menneskets historie, både fordi Kina er så stort, og fordi den ideologiske omvæltning er så massiv. Derefter kommer en periode, hvor Xi Jinping kommer til magten, som har vejet de sidste 10-12 år. Og den handler ikke om, at Kina skal gå fra at være et fattigt til at være et velstående land. Den handler om at takle venstandens problem. Aangs pointe er, at alt hvad Deng Xiaoping gjorde, var svært, men der var en løsning på det. Folk var fattige, de skulle være velstående. Hvorimod alt hvad Xi Jinping skal gøre, er svært, og der er ingen enkle løsninger på det. Hvis han ser på Kinas naturudlæggelse og bremser op i den økonomiske vækst for at redde Kinas natur, så vil det gå ud over den økonomiske vækst. Hvis han ser på, hvordan de sidste tre årtiers enorme økonomiske vækst har skabt en overklasse, som har fået meget stor økonomisk og dermed også politisk magt. Hvis han vil slå ned på dem, og det bliver han nødt til, hvis han bevarer den politiske magt selv, så kommer det også til at koste teknologisk konkurrenceevne i udlandet, og det kommer til at koste økonomisk vækst i Kina. Xi Jinping's problem er, siger Yuan Yuan Ang, at uanset hvad han gør, så vil det få meget store Omkostninger. Der er forskel på Kina og USA. Selvfølgelig er der det, siger Aang. Det ene er et kapitalistisk diktatur, forklædt som kommunisme. Et land uden accountability og et land uden medbestemmelse og liberal beskyttelse af borgerne. Og det andet er stadigvæk et liberalt demokrati, nemlig USA. Men, siger Aang, måske forstår vi Kina og USA bedst. Måske forstår vi relationen mellem dem, deres konkurrence deres rivalisering og deres moderne historie bedst, hvis vi i stedet for at tage udgangspunkt i, at det ideologisk to forskellige systemer siger, at de kæmper med den samme ting. Både Kina og USA vil have det bedste ud af kapitalismen og undgå det værste. Både Kina og USA vil have den teknologiske udvikling, den økonomiske velstand, det store fremskridt, som kapitalismen kan give. Men både Kina og USA vil også meget gerne undgå den enorme Ulighed, der følger med kapitalismen, de vil også meget gerne 
undgå den koncentration af meget stor magt hos nogle få rige mennesker, der også bliver til politisk magt, som følger med kapitalismen. Så hvis man i stedet for at se det som to helt forskellige systemer, ser det som to forskellige tilgange til det samme problem, nemlig kapitalismen i det 21. århundrede, så får man et andet blik på vores egen historie, man får et andet blik på kapitalismen, og man får måske også en langt bedre forståelse af, hvad der er, der sker i USA og i Kina og mellem de to store magter i de her år. Her følger min samtale med Yuan Yuan Eng. God fornøjelse. I was just curious first, because I, I don't know a lot about you personally. I see you were born in Singapore and you're a professor in America. Now, how did you come originally to take an interest in Chinese, Chinese politics? So my interest in Chinese politics and political economy actually emerged when I started, um, when I moved to the United States and started my undergraduate and graduate education in the U.S., And I've been very fortunate that by accident, I stumbled into some of the best places to study China. So I was a PhD student at Stanford University. Um, my mentors include Professor Jean Oi and Andrew Walder, who are some of the best known names and scholars in the field. And in turn, their teacher is a senior U.S. government official and professor named Mike Oxenberg. Uh, most people, including Americans, have not heard of him, but he's the man behind the scenes who enabled the normalization of U.S.-China relations in 1979. He served on the National Security Council as the chief China expert under Jimmy Carter. And in addition to his His role in policy making, he was also a teacher. So he wrote a memo to Brzezinski in 1977, where he specifically said, the issue is, how will we cultivate talent so that 20 years from now, we will have a body of top-notch China analysts in the age of 40 to 55? And those people that he referred to are all my mentors and teachers. He created an entire family tree of China experts and scholars who until today still have a great influence on this country. So I've been very fortunate and honored to be part of that family tree. Oh, that's a great story. When you, then you listen to the discourse in America and in Europe, when we hear our leaders talk about China, do you think there is a lack of will to understand China? You know, I spoke to K.U. Yin, who wrote this book, The New China Playbook, which is quite controversial here because she's uh, sort of not defending, but she's asking us to understand China before we, we condemn it. Do you share her impression mm -hmm. that there's a lack of willingness to really understand China? There is always more room for understanding across cultures. But I think that I'm going to answer your question by reversing your question. Do you think that leaders in China have a sufficiently strong understanding of America and Europe? I, I, I'm not qualified to answer, but if I should mm -hmm. answer, I, I would say that I think My unqualified hypothesis would be 
that they know more about our financial institutions and our political ideologies than we do about theirs. And I think that they know, we think, we tend to think of China as a still communist country and we are the capitalists. And we tend to think of their economy as state driven and ours as, as, as private driven. So I would think that their understanding of our society is superior to our understanding of their societies, but I don't know. I Well, I completely agree with your perspective, but I would raise a couple more questions. I think we typically assume that the West doesn't understand China. And if you look around our world, you see an entire industry dedicated to China watching, to helping Westerners and foreigners, right, pierce the opaqueness of China and demystify the country. And then we assume that China knows the West for reasons that you have rightly pointed out and which are correct. But I think we need to question that assumption. I think it is true to some extent that Chinese leaders might know the West in so far as Western democratic societies are formally open. Right. So we know how democratic elections work. Um, people have a general understanding in the U.S. about the three branches of government, checks and balances. There's a lot of information in America that is open and transparent. So even from China, you can access this information. However, um, if you probe a little bit more, I think it's not clear to me that Chinese leaders really understand America as much as the reverse, because first of all, it's one thing to understand formal political institutions in America, for example. It's another thing to understand everything else, right? So one of the questions I often get when I visit China is Chinese leaders and policy elites are sometimes genuinely puzzled by the way the West perceives them, uh, the way the world perceives them. So one question I, I, I sometimes get is, take the example of China's Belt and Road Initiative, a trillion dollar infrastructure program where China has gone around the developing world, giving out grants and loans. And in China, one of the questions I'm frequently asked is, given that China has been so generous, why does the world still seem to resent China? Like, why is that? You know, and on the trade war, for instance, um, Chinese people and elites are genuinely baffled. You know, why why do Americans seem to resent us so much? You know, where is that resentment coming from? Um, for example, when China, you know, says we are going to have a national rejuvenation, you know, how do Americans see that? You know, do they share in our pride of national rejuvenation or do they see us as a threat? And these are actually questions for which they have no or few answers. And one of the things you we want to actually notice is there is a very large asymmetry of information infrastructure between the West and China. In the West, in America specifically, as I already alluded to, um, when Professor Oxenberg 
helped to normalize relations between the U.S. and China, he set himself to the important task of ensuring there would be generations of China scholars and experts, not only to educate young people, but also to educate the government. So here in D.C., I have been asked, for instance, to testify before Congress to provide you know, expert advice. Anytime D.C. has any question about any aspect of China, they have a wide pool of expertise to draw upon. Right? And this is a highly institutionalized system. And when you are called a China expert, in the U.S., you are someone who has been trained your whole life to develop that contextual knowledge, right? So you're not called a China expertise, a China expert, just because you write some op-eds about China. You've really spent your life acquiring the contextual knowledge for that. Now, when you think about China, on the reverse, is that the equivalent of America watching? Is that the equivalent? of a large, well-established, highly trained body of American experts, of experts who've spent their whole lives trying to understand not only American politics, but also American economy, its society, its culture, its democracy. You realize that infrastructurally, they are actually highly asymmetrical. So even though it may seem that it's easy for China to look at the formal institutions, which are all on the website, and easily understand the West, I think we actually have to question that. In reality, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and lack of understanding on China's part. For instance, there was tremendous premature judgment that American and European Western democracy was on the demise in 2016, with the election of Trump and Brexit, there was a surge of what you can call hubris in China, that liberal democracies are dying. And, and the term used in China at the time was the West is declining and the East is rising. But we see that in a matter of a couple of years, China is frankly puzzled. Why is it that the U.S. economy is more resilient than they thought. And that's because they don't understand that in a democracy, you will see all sorts of problems put out in the air. So it looks like things are terrible. But the freedom of a democracy is also its source of resilience that they haven't understood. Very, very, very interesting. It's one of it's a basic point in your book, China's Gilded Age. That, that 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 we can actually see parallels between American history and China, Chinese history, and you use the word that that the countries are that the trajectories of the countries are similar but not identical, um, yes. uh, and, and that was quite new for me to see to see to compare these two epochs like like that the Gilded Age in in America of course and and uh, the Gilded Age in 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 China. Can you tell us a little bit about this this comparison and this perspective? Of course, I I, I love that top. This is one of my favorite topics. <laughs> um, our human mind tends to succumb to two extremes. So the first extreme is looking at China and America and thinking they're polar opposites. 
these are culturally different countries. They are destined to clash. They have nothing in common, right? So that is one extreme. The other extreme is to do moral equivalence, which is to say, see, they're the same, right? China has repression of human rights. The U.S. has repression of human rights. They're the same, right? And, and both extremes are wrong, right? In life in general, I think we can say that any kind of extreme tends to be incorrect, right? We need to have a healthy balance of, of both. So I, the right mental model to adopt in understanding these two very different uh, interdependent but competing countries is that they are similar but not identical. So we need to think both about their similarities but also about their differences. I'm not saying they're the same. Obviously, they're not, right? So we need to think about how are they similar? And one of the things I wanted to do in my book is to shake up this stereotype of Chinese exceptionalism, right? This, this sort of Orientalist perception that China is this opaque, faraway, strange land and you know everything in china is impenetrable and we have to use some stereotypical cultural tropes just to make you understand this country and i wanted to do it a different way i wanted to say the best way you can understand china what it is happening today in its political economy is actually to understand western history well because western history is a lens that generally in the west we are more familiar with and we are comfortable with however Western history, as it is portrayed in the mainstream literature and political economy, is of, shall we say, a, a decorated version. Right. It's a beautiful version of how England had a glorious revolution in the 17th century, and then there was democracy and all good things followed. Right. That is the narrative we read about in Why Nations Fail. Right. The reality, however, if you look at just U.S. history, which is relatively short compared to European history, is that the U.S., when it was a developing country, was highly corrupt. Right? It was a crony capitalist economy. It had a great deal of inequality. It had tycoons who made their wealth partly out of entrepreneurship, but also a lot because of their cunning and connections. And I myself have been indirectly a beneficiary of that because one of the tycoons is called Mr. Leyland Stanford. He was a railway tycoon of the 19th century, and he built Stanford University, which I attended and benefited from. Mm -hmm. right? So if we really understand the history of the West, God, it is, like I said in the beginning with the story of Singapore, is always complicated. It has dark and it has light sides, right? It has the good, it has the bad. And so once we have a proper recollection of how Western history actually happened, and we look at China today, then it's not as puzzling as most people think, right? Is China the only country that has prospered with widespread corruption? No, it happened in the United States a century ago. They're highly comparable in this respect. It's just that we have decorated that American history and wiped it out of our memory and replaced it with myths. So I wanted to bring back that memory 
and then actually juxtapose it with China. And I think that that juxtaposition um, will help us actually kind of break down this deep-seated, um, this deep-seated barrier, which is we may not we may not articulate it verbally, but this barrier is sort of assuming China is exotic, right? And and we need to break that barrier down because when you assume that someone is alien or exotic, you can never understand them. You have to see that every country, society, and even person has something similar to you because we are all part of humanity. And it is on the basis of that similarity that we can have conversations and that we can arrive at understandings. And then, and then, and I think you, some of the things that you show with the Gilded Age in America and this period of high growth and high inequality, high concentration of, of wealth and, uh, mm-hmm. and corruption in China is, 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 is very convincing, really. But you also force us then to think of, of uh, corruption in another way or in a more nuanced way in, than, than, than we're used to. Uh, because th- this book is about China, but it's also about capitalism and corruption. Yes. Um, there are actually um, several uh, messages smuggled into the book. So you're right. At first, it looks like a book on China. And then if you look more deeply, it looks like a book on corruption. And then if you look more deeply, it's actually a critique of capitalism, right? And it's also a critique of hypocrisy. So I smuggle these messages uh, into the book and uh, some people get them. And when I when when some people get them, I'm very happy. Um, so yes, and trying to explain how China prospered despite corruption, I don't actually start with the assumption that China is abnormal or an anomaly, I actually do the reverse and say, it's not an anomaly. It already happened in the West. It's just that we forgot that history. And if you really acknowledge Western history, China is only a newcomer on a path we have seen. And that path of that history of capitalism, it's not the case that as countries get richer, corruption disappears. That's the conventional wisdom. The real story is as countries get richer, the quality of corruption changes from thuggery and theft to sophisticated exchanges of power and wealth among elites. Then as they reach their highest level of sophistication, it becomes legalized and invisible, right? And these global metrics of corruption, guess what? They help us to obscure this truth by not measuring the corruption of the rich and only measuring the corruption of the poor. So when we look at the numbers, along with the decorated histories, along with authoritative theories put out by authoritative looking people, you know, all this adds up to this compelling truth, right? That ah, rich Western democracies do not have any problem with corruption. But thankfully, with the wave of populism, with democratic backsliding, I think that actually is an educational moment because it got everyone thinking, right? Clearly, we are not perfect. Clearly, something is wrong with our system. There is tremendous inequality in rich democracies. People at the bottom feel that the system is rigged and not working for them, and they're taking their anger out at ballot boxes, right? So. 
I happen to be writing at a time when my message can be listened to. Any earlier, it will definitely be ignored and thrown into the garbage can and uh, nobody will pay me any regard. But I think because of the times, we are actually a little bit open to questioning right, the narratives um, and the concepts that uh, we've been fed. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that this is a time where you also start asking about this concentration of economic wealth. What does it do mm-hmm. to p- political equality? And and reading your book, you know, I get the feeling that basically China and America are struggling with the same beast. They're trying to handle capitalism. They're trying to get the fruits out of capitalism and, and, and all the things that it generates but they're also uh, trying to avoid the pitfalls of capitalism. So instead of looking at it like capitalism and communism, it's two different strategies for handling capitalism. Is that correct? That is correct. And I would say it's specifically two political systems for tackling the same problem of capitalist access. right? And so that is the part where we think about the similarities, that is, they have similar problems of capitalism, corruption, uh, inequality, right? speculative risk. Both of these you can see in China and America. But the way these two countries have been dealing with these problems are very different because their political systems are completely different. China is a one-party autocracy, and now power is even more concentrated than ever before. So what we have seen in China under the current leadership in response to the problems of capitalism is to use top-down methods. So the current leadership has been inclined to launch various kinds of campaigns, um, including the anti-poverty campaign, the anti-corruption campaign, the common prosperity campaign. It's an attempt basically to say, since our advantage is that we have this vast concentration of political power and we can make decisions without any deliberation or hindrance, how about we use that power in a top-down forceful method? Right, to fight each of the problems of, of capitalism, poverty, uh, corruption, uh, and overly powerful private sectors. Right? And we have seen that that method backfires. It backfires for several obvious reasons. Uh, one of which is that when you use these top-down methods, it has a chilling effect. It has a chilling effect on the bureaucracy. It has a chilling effect on the private sector. So in the end, the costs of these methods have exceeded their benefits. Then if we look at the United States, it depends on whether you're talking about the Trump administration or the Biden administration, because we have seen that they've responded to the same set of problems in quite different ways. The U.S., as we now know, is a highly unequal country. And inequality in the U.S., which I think in ways more complicated than other countries, is that inequality and race are intertwined, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, and so what you have seen during the Trump administration, him having a populist agenda, is that he effectively tapped 
into these sentiments of anger right, at deindustrialization, at the sense that globalization has only benefited a small handful of super rich CEOs running MNCs who have taken jobs out of the U.S. to China. He tapped into that sentiment and rose to power in a way no one expected. Right? But fundamentally, if you look at his policies, he didn't address, much less resolve inequality. When Biden took over, I think among his many agendas, one of which is that he saw a need for big government action again. So that is why we see his multi-trillion um, inflation reduction act, which is basically an act that allows government to spend a lot of money building roads, highways, investing in R&D again. Right. So in a sense, the Biden administration is also using this narrative of geopolitical competition with China to provide domestic support for his big government agenda. Right? The narrative being, if we don't spend a lot of money and take big action, China is going to take over us. And it's been an effective narrative, I would say. Right? So it has given him the domestic political support he needs to do these big government programs, which have only started. So if we look at China under Xi, U.S. under Trump, U.S. under Biden, actually they have three very different responses to the same problems. And and if we then uh, stick to your analogy between America and, and, and the U.S., I think something that I was thinking about when I was reading your book, because the first book, uh, How how uh, China Escaped the Poverty Trap, I think of that as a book of the era of Deng Xiaoping. And this is kind of a sequel, which is the yes. era of, 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 of Xi Jinping. So I was thinking, if we should think of him ideologically, he seems to be there's some something populist uh, about him. There's a populist. How would you characterize him from an ideological standpoint? You're absolutely correct. The first book is actually a historical account about the Deng Xiaoping era ending in 2012 with the coming to power of Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping is definitely a, a structural break in modern Chinese history. Right? He is different politically, economically, as well as in his approach to foreign policy. So China's Gilded Age is intended to be a sequel of that first book. And it begins to think about sort of what is Xi trying to do, right? And as you mentioned, what is he ideologically? Um, well, I think it, there is already kind of a there is already, I would, I would say there is a generally broad agreement that um, if we were to use the equivalent um, word here, maybe you could say she's something like a conservative, right? Hmm. He is, um, he wants um, instead of a free, vibrant markets dominated by private sector, he prefers the big hand of the state, right? Uh, he's also clamped down on political freedoms in China significantly. Um, he has concentrated personal power. Um, ever since he came to office, under his leadership, the government has also been advocating values like patriotism. Uh, there was also a regulation 
um, saying that schools and universities should not teach liberal ideas like democracy and rule of law. So I guess you could say in this sense, he's an authoritarian kind of conservative in his outlook. Um, but I think that if we were to dig a little deeper, because it is tempting to simply dismiss Xi as an autocrat in the end, right? But I think if we dig a little deeper, yes, he is uh, an authoritarian leader, but at the same time, I think it, he is serious about acknowledging and trying to tackle the problems of a Chinese Gilded Age. I, I do think he is trying his best to deal with that. He is very different from his predecessors. Deng Xiaoping inherited a broken and extremely poor communist country. So Deng Xiaoping's job was not easy, but it was more straightforward in the sense that what you need to do is to make China rich, right? That is the solution. Sure. Whatever you can do to make China rich, that would be the right method. Um, Xi Jinping, however, has a much more complicated legacy. He is the inheritor of China's Gilded Age. Right? Deng Xiaoping successfully delivered for him a Gilded Age, which is a, a prosperous country, uh, industrialization, urbanization, but with corruption, inequality, financial risk, and a general sense of moral uh, degradation. Right? So when he's faced with this context and this package of problems, one of his chief challenges is it's not clear what the solution is. For Deng Xiaoping, it's clear. Just make China rich. But what, what if you have these sort of middle income, complex social problems? Like what exactly is the solution? And almost every solution that he takes will have a cost. So if you fight corruption very, very hard, okay, great. You might reduce corruption, but the bureaucracy is paralyzed, right? If you say you want to clamp down on the monopoly of big private companies, well, their business confidence will be diminished. So it seemed for him like every solution he tried to take has a backlash and has a cost, right? And I think that has been deeply frustrating for him. In one of the speeches that he delivered after the common prosperity crackdown to central bureaucrats, he said something to the extent of the problem of when it comes to solving poverty, we have plenty of experience. But when it comes to managing prosperity, we still have a lot to learn. It's in a sense, privilege for China to be richer but 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 it's like in life we when i think when we were poor we th we might think if only i were rich my problems would be solved and then when you actually become rich you realize oh no my problems of poverty have been solved now i have the problems of the rich right and and the problems of the rich are in some sense harder to solve than the problems of the poor so this is what i think xi jinping is facing yeah so sometimes when we look at just the economic numbers of, of China, the growth rate or the direct foreign investments, we actually 
don't understand that the problem is not just economic performance anymore, mm-hmm. as it used to be, that the problem is is balancing the political power and economic power. It's getting the best out of, of what private sector can deliver without handing them too much uh, power. So it's the balance between politics yes. and, 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 and economy. Yes, I think every problem on Xi's desk is a trade-off. So the simple one would be protecting the environment or economic growth, right? So if you want to make strong efforts at protecting the environment, it will definitely, at least in the short term, affect economic growth. You can see that every one of his decisions has a trade-off. He tried to uh, curb uh, overborrowing and speculative risk in the real estate. So the central government said we're going to draw three red lines you know, and real estate developers cannot borrow beyond a certain point. But as soon as he did that, he began to burst the bubble, right? So no matter what he does, right, if, if he ignores the risk, that would be a problem. If he addresses the risk, that is also a problem. You know, I don't, I don't envy anyone <laughs> in that position. You know, every single problem is, is a trade-off. I think for, I think looking at China from a distance and always also like this they're so efficient and we're so lazy here they they mm. have they have this plan you know that's a, another kind of orientalism is saying well yeah. they have so much discipline and we have so much consumption exactly here you know they can do the the solar uh, energy for a 50 year plan and we we can have trump and we're back to normal uh, yeah. then then you know i think we tend to underestimate uh, the problems of, of, of this balancing act between politics and, and economy. And, but something that I was very curious about is that we saw the protests against the lockdown. And the lockdown was, was in my understanding, very much a project of Xi Jinping. It was connected to him as a leader. We've seen protests in China before, but this seemed to me to be directed against his leadership and be more personally against him. How important were these protests during the lockdowns? Um, so if we were to draw personal life lessons from China's zero COVID, the personal life lesson would be don't be too attached to your initial success. <laughs> That's that is what happened. So if we go back to the timeline, we might remember that in the beginning, when the pandemic first broke out in China. Xi Jinping himself was under intense criticism, right? So he faced a lot of pressure domestically. But then he managed to turn the situation around dramatically. Uh, He got his team together, and then they put together a zero-COVID package of measures, which included mass quarantine, testing everyone, locking down cities when necessary, And we might have forgotten this, but if you go back to read the news around like early 2020, oh, people were like, this is this is spectacularly successful, right? Uh, America at the time was uh, crumbling under an explosion of cases while China shut its doors. They, they did have to lock down a few cities for a couple of weeks, but once they were done with that, They had nearly no cases. It was entirely safe within China. 
And so there was this great sense of triumph, not only among Xi Jinping, but also the Chinese public, that, you know, our top-down system, our strict quarantines work. And and that was the context in which the party felt uh, perhaps our top-down authoritarian system truly has a political advantage. And you see it in the numbers. So they became very attached to this success. And they became very attached to the evidence of this success as it is seen in the COVID numbers. So the Chinese press would repeatedly, you know, almost every day, repeat the COVID numbers. The U.S., thousands of cases. China, nearly zero. So clearly we are succeeding and the U.S. is not, right? But I think actually the whole event is so educational for every individual, even though it's at the country level, because what happened if we move, uh, if we fast forward the timeline to around 2022, right? Two years later, the, the situation began to change dramatically, right? Because remember, we had vaccines. So, you know, all Americans uh, were given the opportunity to be vaccinated. Uh, people either had the vaccines like myself or got COVID and had natural immunity also like myself. Uh, and so even though here in the U.S. we went through a rough period, by end of 2022, the population had a high level of immunity. And so we were able to start uh, going back to work, you know, socializing, going out, shopping, and life resumed normalcy, I would say, roughly by the end of two years, right? Meanwhile, in China, what happened? Meanwhile, um, COVID-19 was such a cunning virus, right? It mutated many times. And it mutated into this variant that was highly contagious, but actually less lethal. And so what happened within China is that if you try to use the same methods of 2020 to contain a highly contagious virus, it's just impractical. It's like trying to stop the wind. Right. And and at, at huge social costs, because you keep locking down cities, you prevent people from going to school, from going to work, from consuming. So it became a complete disaster. Right? And people would only take to the streets when they were absolutely desperate. And by the end of three years, they were desperate because initially people um, were triumphant. Right. They thought that, yes, you know, this is successful. By the third year, they're like, when will this end? Right. We need to go out again. We need to go back to work. When will this end? Because my savings have been used up. Uh, my company is struggling. I, I need to go out and make a living. So a lot of people were protesting out of genuine desperation and frustration with when will this end? So it was only when the Chinese leadership saw this unprecedented expression of frustration as seen in these mass protests on the street that they woke up and realized, oh, this is truly unsustainable and we have to stop. And we saw that they essentially ended COVID almost overnight. It was so erupt for what had been such a draconian strict policy. So if we look at the whole timeline. Personally, I think it's a philosophical lesson on many levels. 
Do not be attached to your initial success <laughs> and always adapt to changing conditions, right? As the virus change, as the world change, China had to change its methods. What used to work only two years ago can become totally impractical two years later. So I, I think that's helpful for us all to, you know, know and remember and 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 apply it on a daily basis. <laughs> Thank you so much, Yuan. I have just one last question for you, uh, which is if we take the consequence of the point that these are the different systems, but they're dealing with the same problems, they're part of the same history, trying to, and they're dealing. First of all, they're dealing with the same problems created by capitalism, yeah. trying yeah. trying to get the best out of it and avoid the worst. Then what is the consequence in the geopolitical view? And I know this could be a big question, but I'm just asking it truly. Is it so that China and the US do not need to be adversaries? Is that so that is the conclusion that for that reason, they could actually collaborate a lot more and they can be competitors and collaborators and then, then, and then, this view of a new Cold War is is absolutely misleading. Mm-hmm. What what would be your in in short? What would be the takeaway from that parallel in today's geopolitical tense times? Yeah, I wrote a essay following up on my book. It's called "The Clash of Two Gilded Ages," hmm. and it is a play on the uh, famous book by political scientist Sam Huntington called The Clash of Civilizations. I disagree with many arguments made in The Clash of Civilizations, in particular its connotation or suggestion that countries of different cultures are destined to clash with each other. But it's a popular notion, and it was actually re-invoked during the Trump administration. Uh, I think it's a dangerous notion because ultimately it justifies what the idea that if you if two countries are of different cultures and languages, they just cannot get along. It's it's, it's deterministic. It's a self fulfilling prophecy, right? And so what I argue is what we are seeing today on the geopolitical scene is a clash of two gilded ages. China is facing a gilded age 1.0. The U.S. is facing a Gilded Age 2.0. The U.S. variety is more advanced. Right? The tycoons in the U.S. are not real estate magnets. They are concentrated in like technology and high finance. But essentially, they are two Gilded Ages. And they both have serious domestic problems that every now and then they try to blame the other country for. They mm-hmm. both do that. Right. The U.S. has a problem with inequality and it says, ah, China took our jobs. Right. China has a problem with an economic slowdown arising from its own policies. But it says, ah, the U.S. contains us. Right. So so they both have these problems. Right. That are intrinsically domestic. But they try to say it's the other person that's causing our problem. Right. And that becomes a very damaging, dangerous dynamic because it's human nature that we like to blame other people for our problems, <laughs> right? It's it's always just easier to accept. Instead of dealing with our own problems, it's much easier to say someone else caused it, you know, it's all these persons' fault. And when you have these kind of denialism, then you don't actually seriously address your domestic problems. 
the geopolitical implication of my essay is, look, there will be competition between China and the U.S., no doubt about that. Right? And competition is a fact of life. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Competition can make us improve and work better. So competition itself is not a problem. What is a problem is both of these countries deflecting their domestic problems on the other party and refusing to acknowledge the truth. The real competition between China and America is not who will trip and sabotage the other. Their real competition is who will sabotage themselves less. That's the real competition, right? If you look at the worst problems in China, sh sure, there are export controls in the US, but is it the main factor leading to China's economic downturn? It isn't. It's one of the factors. The biggest factors are self-inflicted. If you look at America, is inequality primarily due to China? No, China was just a normal part of the global economy. China did not force U.S. companies to move to China, right? And so if you look at the problems in both of these superpowers, the most serious problems are self-inflicted. So they are actually in a competition to see who will sabotage themselves less. They're not in a competition to sabotage the other person more. That is not where the real competition is. The real competition is always about yourself. Do you face your problems? Do you deal with your problems? And anyone who uh, spends their energy blaming other people, we know in politics as in life, they will not succeed. Well, thank you so much, Yuan. I think that's a very, actually, there is a very hopeful perspective to what you said here in the end. I haven't finished processing it, but thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Have a great rest of the day. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you for your work. Thank you. Det var min samtale med Yuan Yuan Eng. Hendes to bøger hedder How China Escaped the Poverty Trap, og den anden bog hedder China's Gilded Age, The Paradox of Economic Boom and Vast Corruption. Den her udsendelse var produceret og sat sammen af vores gode ven, kammerat Mads Adam Wiener. I næste uge skal vi et andet sted hen, og så måske alligevel ikke helt så langt væk, som det kunne lyde. Der skal vi tale med Tony Blairs foranværende toprådgiver, Alastair Campbell. Alastair Campbell var med til at forme New Labour. Han var med til at forme opgøret med det gamle Labour. Han var med til at præge Tony Blairs lange periode som premierminister i Storbritannien. Han ser i dag tilbage på det, han synes var succeser og det, der var fiaskoer. Og så har han skrevet en ny bog. Og det er en bog, der er henvendt til de unge mennesker. For som han siger i min samtale med ham, hvis man som han har været ved magten, tæt på politik, en del af the establishment i 30 år, og kan se, at der er rigtig meget, der er gået helt af helvede til, så har man en pligt. Det er at skrive til de unge mennesker, hvordan man landede der, og hvordan de selv kan komme videre. Det er jo noget, vi alle sammen tumler med. Det er også noget at en af grundene til, at vi overhovedet laver langsomme samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Tak fordi I lyttede med.